0: This is The Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com
1: Join here with uh, uh, Penacchietti. Uh He's a social Yay. impressionist painter and writer from the first uh, post-national nation, and also a Gonzo philosopher and failed academic. That's just how he describes himself uh, on YouTube. He's all yeah. He's also the host of uh, Giant Art Productions on YouTube, and also a host on the Break the Rules podcast. Uh, Gio, uh, great having you on, and also uh, Matt Pigas is here to co-host.
2: Yo, thank you for inviting me. This is, uh, you're, the, you're the first one to actually get my last name, like, correctly. It's Penichetti, but people just, just it's easier to say Penechetti. Um, but yeah, this is great. I mean, I've been following um, Star Truth Radio for years, and you've had some pretty, like, I would say, important, notable guests. So uh, and we finally got the chance to uh, to you know uh, <laughs> to finally um, you you know uh, how shall I say do we'll a do the job together to, as they say in wrestling. So yeah, anyway. the first
1: time I uh, came across your online presence was when you were describing my book *Journey to Vapor Island* as degenerate. <laughs>
2: yeah, that was those many moons ago. But I subsequently read Journey to Vapor Island and I quite enjoyed it. Um, I think like it's really weird um, our paths have sort of crossed. I remember um, when you like came like were more well like well known on Twitter. um, I'm like, oh my god, you wrote Journey to Vapor Island. You're like, wow, you call my book degenerate back then. I go, oh man. Um, I think like Journey to Vapor Island to me is like such a trip in terms of being like one of the most and i say this totally in a good way one of like the most infamous pieces of alt literature that internet culture has ever produced and i think like in some ways you could say it is kind of like a capsule in time of what was going on at the like very much like the stuff that we're we're a product of in the like what would you even describe it as like post-gamer gay frog twitter type of stuff that was hovering yeah, around yeah i do think
1: i have a sequel to that book which is coming out this summer but looking back on it like i do think there are references that are a bit uh dated it did kind of coincide the 2016 election with trump yeah
2: yeah
0: i mean it's very much like uh and but just as a disclaimer and people who listen to the show know this geo may not i wasn't even into this stuff back then so i can't even really fully claim this, but basically my impression is that it really captures that uh, Chatelet, uh Trump 2016 moment <laughs> pretty well in terms of memes. But I have to ask, actually, because I wasn't there this time, and I've never really talked to Robert, did, did this, did, did uh, Journey to Vapor Island, it made a pretty big splash on Twitter when it first came out, then, is my understanding. Like people were talking about it on Frog Twitter and such.
2: <laughs> oh Yeah. It was, it was pretty like, popular in the chans. The
0: famous uh, detractor. Oh, really? Or... Because
1: uh, I was never like I was never that active on the chans. Like my impression was that uh, that I got some excellent reviews, but I didn't I didn't really get the impression that it really took off.
2: It it kind of did, but it's it's kind of hard to tell with Vilet because usually let they have this like tendency to just like shred everything that someone like actually goes out and does on their own. So there was people that like I'm not gonna lie. there were some pretty harsh critics, but then there were people that realized like it was in in some ways a perfect encapsulation of that moment in time. and it, just like th- there was like so much so many things there, like so so many like avenues of offense that it was just like, oh my god, it really was the, that like, I, like, again, I don't want to, like, put some rose-colored glasses on that particular period because, of course, I see um, the downside to a lot of what happened, like, post-2016 with, like, the whole OG frog... Tw- like, I wouldn't even say frog Twitter when it became more, like, mainstream after Gamergate with, like, Trump and, like, the... Th- there truly was kind of, like, a 60s moment for the political right in some ways, and now... Uh, it's kind of like with Joe Biden. It's kind of like we're all waking up to Richard Nixon in 1971. And it's like that spirit has kind of been severely muted. But I don't know. I mean, all the interesting things happened in the 70s, so you never know. Uh, but I think it was pretty much a capsule. Oh, yeah. Of 70s,
1: I do think, uh, not to go off on too much of a, t- of a tangent, but uh, it's hard to make these predictions, but I think 70s would maybe be the best comparison for the 2020s. But I find it so affable when you have, like, these uh, boomers on – and the mainstream media actually saying that we're going to have like another 1920s oh
2: god yeah i i think that is a lot of people they um they talk about like the th- this was a meme back then too was the Weimerica thing but i think like people are saying it's not so much that we're well i mean we kind of do exist within a like Weimar culture but it's more so that it's like think of what happened in the late like, late 80s, early 90s Soviet Union collapsing. That's sort of like... I, I don't think it's exactly a pretty good comparison, I mean, unless we have total balkanization. But there's still like a lot of... how shall I put it? Harmonious qualities to these different periods, and now we're sort of... it's sort of coinciding with our era, and who knows what's going to happen, because there's so many different and more unique factors to what we're going through. I don't know, this is all just speculation. Obviously.
1: Oh yeah, it's, uh, it's just speculating to make these uh, predictions, but, uh, with the review, you did this, uh, excellent review of my artwork, and, uh, but I think you did say that the book, actually Journey to Vapor Island, that the visual art actually fits the same vibe, uh, of the literary work.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it, um, I, I like to... See, I'm like... Someone told me once, they're like, yeah, you're like the only YouTuber uh, or one of the only ones like in this space that... Because like there's a lot of YouTubers and you know, you've interviewed a fair bit of them. I mean, a lot of them, let's face it, they've been banned. Uh, <laughs> but they focus on like pop culture. They'll focus on films. And you know, films... I mean, there's a lot of depth to critiquing films, but it, it gets sort of like it becomes kind of easy content after the after a while. But I mean, when it comes to specifically visual art, I noticed that in our sort of circles there's a lot, there's like a dirge there's like a lack of that type of content. But yeah, I think like visually your paintings when you read like Journey to Vapor Island, it kind of it it brings it together in that like retro futurist, like sleaze type of aesthetic that in some ways is very appealing and very sensuous, but in like a very raunchy sort of way. Um, it's it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's hideous in a good way. Put it that way, Rob. It's hideous in a good way. So. Oh, yeah, you
1: described it as uh, Fovist uh, vaporwave uh, genres ranging from Italian futurism to mid-century modern to 80s oh, yeah. are kind of mentioned. And those are the genres, more genres of the 20th century where there's this kind of a constant, and some criticisms of those genres as well. since they replace like the more traditional local oh, yeah. aesthetic, that is more more perennial, and they're not super tonalist. Uh, there is there is uh, transitions and shading, but there are like similar to Felvism, like these uh, big kind of blocks of color. But yeah, like the theme of aesthetic exploration of the locations. Is one of them, and then dreamlike quality being pulled into a vortex. Then you mention the garish elements to decadent excess, and then with like the paintings of Vegas, uh, you do get into some of those dynamics. So you mentioned that some directors said Vegas is a playground uh, for slaves, but there's like like a longing, well, especially today's Vegas, like I think, uh, that's what it's become. But there's like a longing for sort of older decadence and, like, the hauntological, like, lost futures, what retrofuturism is, like, the future we could have had returning to futures past, like, what that, those, that era when we had these, like, really kind of lavish interiors, like, what it said about our society mm-hmm. of, like, mm-hmm. leisure, free time, and access of wealth is shown off, and then kind of contrasting that with a lot of this, uh, this trend like, towards minimalism today, and really kind of sterile, uh, interiors, like, things that become Aesthetics has become much more uh, practical, like, what what my visual work says about these uh, social hist- and historical aesthetic trends.
0: Yeah, there's kind of, like, multiple, uh, it, this seems like some gay academic way of talking about it, but also <laughs> yeah. like, there's multiple levels of irony to this kind of art and to um, Vaporwave as an aesthetic, where it's like, yeah, it's kind of ironic, and it's kind of garish, but also it's kind of nice, and maybe it... Uh, Maybe maybe even if uh, and I've written about this a little bit like you know you could talk you could look at the, something like a mall which is a common common vaporwave symbol and something that Robert has painted and or yeah. even Vegas and you could say these are uh, these are the products of consumerism and they're soulless but at the same time in comparison with today in comparison with minimalism whatever you want to call it um, they, they, they at least represented a time when, when they they had their own sort of uh, affect so to speak even if. Even if they're examples of the classic, like postmodern waning of Apex thing, like these things are now old enough that they kind of have their own, they encapsulate their own time period. So it, that's where the sort of layers of irony or distance come in, where it's like you don't know whether something's ironic or not. But ultimately, I think it's not ironic, and there's a sincere um, yearning expressed by the, these kinds of aesthetics.
2: It very much is like a post sincerity, or sorry, a new sincerity. I, I personally, like, I, I don't like the term metamodern because, uh-huh. like, let's, th- let's face the people that created the term are bug men, so that's, yeah. um,
0: <laughs> I like uh, is, I am familiar, I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, like, neo-sincerity, but... And I, I used to kind of go into that rabbit hole of trying to figure out what the hell it meant, and I don't really care what it means, but also it, it is useful to think about anything that goes beyond postmodernism.
2: Yeah, and I think that, to me, being sort of a law well, defenders is kind of a weird word being someone who thinks that, you know, from the very beginning that we should in my work and my writings and even some, in some ways in my art that we have to sort of come to terms with postmodernism. There is something to how these non-spaces like the mall, like these very like monumentally, uh, you know, festering neon distractions of, consumerism like Las Vegas as a whole.
1: It's a big theme of having, I don't necessarily embrace this obviously, but like a traditionalist type will say, or a reactionary will say, that it's nostalgia for earlier stages of liberalism and consumerism, so an outright reactionary will, or traditionalist yeah. will actually reject that, but I don't necessarily agree agree with that point, but like, we do need to create something new and we can sort of borrow from different pieces from the past, but I don't necessarily agree with that perspective.
2: Oh, no, what I was going to say, I, I would agree with you more. Um, I, I do think they are early stages of liberalism. Let's let's not be, like, kidding. Oh, me, yeah, for like, sure. But I do agree with you, Robert, that um, I agree with both of you in the sense that I feel that there's beyond, like, just the nostalgia of, like, the what would you say, particularly Gen X, like, why can't we go back to 90s liberalism? I think, like, if you were to bracket politics for a minute, you would say that there's a nostalgia for our direct past, and being, like, an older millennial, I think that is the space that we inhabit, because we were literally on the cusp of two different worlds and two different uh, ontologies that were fundamentally opposed and so when you have this dramatic tension notice how the lost futures the hauntology comes about from what is the most immediate to us the 80s the 90s and and to some degree the 70s i saw a video i'm not
1: sure if you know who coach blackpill is but he made like he made the comparison that like the hauntology of the dead malls it kind of parallels like one one's personal sense of lost youth and that especially applies yeah, exactly. to like the yes. the generation of older millennials older. and younger older. Gen X too.
0: Yeah, because yeah, exactly. on the cusp of, as Gio said, between like you know empire and post empire, however you want to put it, like the end of the end of of America as we knew it versus. Whatever it is now. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the most operative thing is the nostalgia itself, almost, and it's, like, because that's a thing that we actually have access to, it's not just, like, the whole, like, the old, this is dated, to t- even talking about, but the old meme of, like, the woman in the cornfield uh, and <laughs> stuff like that, like, we don't actually have access to that, most of us, so... No,
2: that's but, a fantasy.
0: Yeah. yeah, like, there's a more real nostalgia.
1: So, yeah, <laughs> I would agree, so I would actually make the case that, ironically, that, like, nostalgia for 80s mall is more trad because fantasizing about some idealized vision of the 19th century that I mean that's more of a product of liberalism because it's based on maybe uh a, a, fantasy. A, a fantasy or even like kind of a like a Disney movie image so I'd make the case that's, that that's actually
2: more liberal it's it's like it's like boomers with um with like norman rockwell paintings
0: so oh yeah yeah it's kind, it is kind of like that for for of a certain age and for gen x and I'm just reminding, the one point I want to interject, because I think it's useful, it's kind of an ironic source, or not ironic, it's kind of a funny source, but if you guys know the musician Zurius, he did an interview with, with Greg at CounterCurrents. And, oh, yeah, um, I heard that one. describing, like, and he makes, uh, you know, synthwave or Wave, so to speak. Oh, or, that guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I mean, the, the interview's good in general, because I, I do enjoy him as a musician, but the, the part of it that actually has really stuck with me on like a deeper spiritual and philosophical level is that how he described? Like he his, mu- his music draws from the 80s as a lot of like Vapor and Fashwave aesthetics did. But it's not that he thinks the 80s were so great. It's just the nostalgic the nostalgia itself to him and some of the symbols from that time to him that spoke of uh, sort of like the, 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 what exactly he said was more eloquent than this, but just that the, the seed of nostalgia in our soul, is ultimately, even if it's over something like 80s malls, is ultimately rooted to man's longing to be reunited with the divine. Well, and yes, that's a very high-pollutant way of putting it, but that actually, yeah, spiritually I, I relate to that.
2: Well, it's, it becomes, a, yeah, exactly, it becomes a reified spiritual quality. Now, I, I have my criticisms of Fashwave, maybe if you want to get into that, but I think that it's true because that nostalgia itself, the, the problem, I think, I mean, the problem with Fashwave and a lot of that stuff is that the nostalgia doesn't reach past itself. It doesn't self-overcome. It could provoke the seeds of self-overcoming to arrive at a sort of, I guess you would say, like a um, neo-trad futurism or something. Some kind of like weird archaeo-futurist concept of, you know, seeing our way through rather than total full-on rejection. I also think that a lot of it is because the 80s was... A time of rediscovery of, in terms of aesthetics, you had this like neo um, Art Deco sort of movement where it embodied like hyper capitalist Americana empire to where, that that one like at the very small window in history where those things actually had like the inkling of Faustian man. Yeah,
1: yeah. like there's what like, the eighties the- said about a lot of the like, kind of ironies because there's one one view that it is synonymous with like rass just kind of crass consumerism, but I guess, yeah. obviously, a big part of the nostalgia was it was really, like, the last the last era of great, kind of, this perception of American greatness, and then by the 90s, there was this kind of decline, gradual, and then a big decline after 2010, but the thing is, is, uh, there's also uh, like, what it says about, like, a kind of Promethean aesthetic, too, and a yeah. lot of these, uh, a lot of these kind of postmodernist 80s malls they would maybe pay homage to genres of the past, like the Victorian shopping arcade or Art Deco or some kind of ancient uh, city. Like the kind of aesthetics the aesthetic appeal of Trump was part was part of it too. Yeah. And then he yes, kind of yes. lost mm-hmm. that. Like Trump went from eighties retrofuturism to giving these kind of uh, his speeches where it just seemed like a pretty generic, like kind of county fair. So aesthetics are crucial to politics and then kind of looking over this Trend is getting a bit cliche, but we keep talking about in the show how the, kind of these kind of minimalistic uh, trends uh, you see in like office spaces and, and shopping complexes are about kind of concealing inequality uh yeah. in wealth and power. And then you had this video on neoliberal kitsch, radical liberal realism, which actually does reappropriate the kitsch from Americana, but molds it into this kind of new, the woke era. So yeah, like, what are your overall thoughts on the symbolism, the political symbolisms uh, within aesthetics, and do you have any thoughts on like the political trends, the politi- the aesthetic trends relating to politics of where we're headed uh, this upcoming decade in the twenty twenties?
2: Wow, thank you. That's wow. I could go on forever about this. Um, I'm glad you liked that video. Um, me and uh, on my channel, I, I. Uh, well, I'm co-host of Break the Rules podcast, but um, me and another great artist friend of mine, Matthew the Stout, we also have a podcast, uh, Style Talks, where it's exclusively about art. And we recently released um, an episode about the Sanford Bigger statue in that everyone was freaking out about. Uh, but we go into the, the other artists. Is that the that are... one in Rockefeller yes, the Center? Rockefeller because
1: Center. I uh, recently interviewed Jason or Johnny. He was outraged about this, but not like the normal reaction like he has his own political uh philosophy of prometheism so it's more like a but just kind of the desecration of this temple of prometheus like what like promethean aesthetics and uh, uh i'm obviously not a fan of the statue but a lot of those responses on right wing and trad twitter were pretty uh cliche or even pretty cringe
2: yeah we go into that and i think that me and matthew we have similar conclusions to Giorgiani. i mean i could bring this up apparently in august uh, on btr we're also uh he's going to grace um our presence but i mean as much as i have a dis- uh, you know me being a catholic as much as i disagree with <laughs> him <laughs> uh but I, i'm i think i saw that you interviewed Giorgiani and i have to uh it, it's out now right i i think i could uh okay
1: it's not out as we're recording but will be posted before the show gets posted
0: Oh, yeah. okay, okay, good. Also, we've been, uh, Robert and I, and Robert and our friend Francis, I mean, there's a couple, there's a few interviews already from this year with Giorgiani, so you may have seen one of those. Oh,
2: yeah, that was the one I saw, yeah. I would like to see you bring
1: Georgiani on onto your podcast and have it, maybe have, like, a friendly debate. So, yeah, he does pretty much strongly reject Christianity and Catholicism.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he got into it with my friend Joel recently, uh, um, but it, besides that, what you asked was a great question. By the way, uh, before we continue, shout out to Pill Eater, Francis. Uh, yeah. He's a good friend of mine as well. Great dude. I I also, I, he's been on BTR a few times, but I think um, on my channel I want to have like a few one-on-ones with him. Um, but you said the aesthetic vision. Uh, with neoliberal kits, so I bring this up because me and Matthew, um, I'm currently sketching out, like, a script for uh, our next episode of Style Talks, and I eventually want to write, like, something like a full-length book on neoliberal kitsch and also on, like, humans of flat design, but I have to coax a certain someone to co-author with me about flat design. Uh, But I think that in terms of... Well, my thoughts on the Trump aesthetic, it's very apt because he went from initially... This aesthetics of futurist raw power that was inhibited as this like '80s um, retro futurist vibe, but as time goes on, as he had to appeal to more of the boomer constituency that does have money.
1: Another thing I find ironic is uh, you have the the kind of the wealthy, but also kind of geriatric kind of donor class. They were probably from that actual elite in the '80s backing the more kind of really bland, generic aesthetics, and then just appealing to kind of like the masses. But then you have like a lot of the people from the alt-right who are like, they're young men who are economically disenfranchised, but they're kind of embracing, what appealed to Trump was that Trump reflected the elite aesthetics, but from the past. So that's interesting too, but what you were going to say about uh, Trump's aesthetics and then also neoliberal uh, realism.
2: Yeah, yeah, um... I think no, but that's that's a great point. That I, I it's sort of weird, like why that is. Why I think maybe because younger people they do in, inhabit some sort of thumos, where through their disenfranchisement they want to embody a more powerful sort of aesthetic, even if it comes. I mean, anti-capitalism. And I'm certainly not a fan of capitalism. It's it's still like appealing in the sense of the way that Art Deco was. But I think that Trump. It is funny that these elites, the donor class, they came. Prob, they were probably like moguls in the '80s, moguls and high rollers. But yet they still, as they get older, they have their own boomer nostalgia for their childhood. So as Trump goes on, it became more about like ridiculous, like McNaughton paintings, where tr- you know Trump is kind of like a Norman Rockwell sort of figure, and it becomes more of like the county fair um, boomer sloganeering that you'd find like, more appealing to Fox News constituency. They they do have this, like, terribly parochial aesthetic that is, you know, the county fair, barbecue, Fox News women, you know, bottle blondes. It's got this own flavor to it that doesn't... It's, it's almost... I know this word keeps getting thrown around a lot everywhere, but it is very, like, sclerotic in nature. It's like... Yeah, it's... I, Trump, I think... When Trump started to fail... It's because his aesthetics were not on point, And, of course, he, you know, kicked out some pretty good people. Uh, but, but that being said, about neoliberal kitsch or rad liberalism, I think, like, in, in a way, the aesthetics become prepackaged throughout our own uh, era. Yeah, of it is based Compton.
1: upon, like, the past. That's kind of the thing is, like, it, yeah. it kind of relates to uh, the right assumes the left is anti-American. But it kind of relates to this co-option of American civic nationalism, like exactly. the Hamilton's the best example of that. And that's the same with neoliberal kitsch, is taking classic Americana, and then transforming it, to kind of, or kind of co-opting it into the new era that we're in now. I think conservatives, are they come across as pretty foolish when they say that the left just wants to dismantle and destroy America, but it's a co-option into something, co-option of Americanism into kind of the woke era.
2: Yeah, they're really their beast, and just to finish my point, I think that the aesthetics become prepackaged because they're very, like, you know, campy, gaudy, uh, kitschy type of color palette, um, with a certain large activist group, which I won't get into, uh, that recently changed their flag to be more inclusive, if you know what I mean, and um, they're, they're sort of like the oh is that that's...
1: the new uh ra- the new rainbow flag yeah you know, with where the it's black bizarre. and the brown and the trends, kind, I think so. it it's kind of bizarre because it's the same design as the South African flag but it's I just... wonder
2: really really makes you think that's... yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I don't I wouldn't consider myself along the vein of uh like counter or like white nationalism but at the same time I can kind of see there's just I don't know there's some weird kind of synchronicity going on there um with South African flag and that but no I think that the the aesthetics become very much prepackaged to become very much formalized along political lines and that's the whole point you mentioned about malls and this came up with um, your great interview I was listening to with uh, blowergeist uh, oh yeah where you ta- you talked about the malls and how rich people now they have adopted this minimalist IKEA aesthetic I think to me that really is a form of aesthetic terrorism, a form of a, an aesthetic psyop. Because when when the mega-wealthy, they refuse to um, cloak themselves within their own regalia, it very much is a distortion of the natural order of things. And we have elites that aren't specifically designed to, or born into being, you know, leaders. We have... The bugocracy, and at the top of the verminoid heap, as BAP says, we have uh, these hideous cryptoids that uh, refuse to dress themselves as the true aristocrats, but rather inflict this bland minimalism upon people. And, you know, minimalism has its place, in my opinion, uh, but I think that the the world is becoming one giant non-place, and it's a form of a psyop aesthetic terrorism. But sorry, I've, I've been rambling.
1: If you look at these different cities, uh, I think, like, New York, despite its flaws... Does have a very kind of retro futuristic uh, feel. Oh, yeah. Also very gritty. But uh, you're from, you're from Ontario, not not Toronto, but Toronto. Like you're kind of talking about like where the aesthetic trends are going. I don't really know if uh, the minimalism will continue throughout the 2020s. I've like seen some new uh, some new proposals for like mega developments that maybe seem to be uh, inspired by. Maybe a bit something that might be a bit more retro futurist I'm actually not 100% pessimistic about aesthetics, but looking kind of at the 2010s trend, like Toronto, it is very futuristic. But and they have like a lot of skyscrapers and like an underground city, but it's not it's not retro futuristic. I've never been to Canada, but from the the photos that I've seen, like my impression of Toronto and Vancouver too, is that it is just it's just all kind of like glass cubes, very futuristic, but also very uh,
2: minimalistic and sterile. It's futuristic in a bad way. Um, Vancouver is a bit more redeemable, although the people are not redeemable, I hate to say it, uh, because of their geographic location, that's pretty much it. But Toronto, and you, and you talked about this with my good, good friend, uh, Bimbo Uberman, shout out to Bimbo. Um Toronto really is like the designer, like SimCity's default city of the future, where um, everyone is sort of segregated in their ethnic enclaves, No, nothing is original, uh, there's only big brand box stores, it really is, like Toronto, I hate to say it, is kind of, and I know this is probably going to bite me in the ass in the future, but Toronto is really spiritually humiliating on such a fundamental level with their aesthetics, so, Yeah. <laughs> I want to get kind of get back to that,
1: but you did do a video on Italian Futurism, as both, oh, yeah. both a political and arts movement. It didn't really take off, obviously, after the war. And Marinetti had radical ideas like destroying everything old, which obviously would alienate a lot of people. But it is relevant to the kind of retrofuturist scene, where you break from the past. But there's also a, there's a fusion of the sacred with uh, technological progress. And that's something, like, there's something really missing in futurism today. Like, uh, like the degree of technological progress uh, can be debated because it does seem that we're just creating, like, new apps and there's a lack lack of innovation. Some people talk about, like, a managed decline. There's a really lack of any kind of, like, futuristic vision. Basically, like, what people who call for retrofuturism would want to advocate, like, what is futurism today. And kind of relates... To like, contrasting retrofuturism and Italian futurism, but you could even say like the, the idealism of like those who are into fash wave, and then like what counts for futurism today, with the example of uh, Toronto.
2: Mm, interesting. Um. Well, Matt, you haven't talked in a while. Do you do you have uh, any thoughts on this?
0: Um, in terms of the future of the future, that's what you're asking about, right, Robert? Like what. What, what What is futurism today? Is that kind of what you're asking about?
1: Yeah, what is futurism today? And I'd also say that because of the internet, like, there's no, like, longer a monoculture. Like, looking at past <laughs> generations, these 20th century trends, with, uh, like, the boomers, Gen X, millennials, it was kind of a disposable culture of reinventing oneself with all these different 20th century genres. But, like, looking at the the Zoomers and the trends of the 21st century it seems that there's actually no because the internet people can sort of fragment into their own yep. like cultural aesthetic and political bubbles
0: yeah and let me ask this like when in ev- when has it ever been the case that like that kind of wh- when has a subculture ever taken control of the future i mean that's the question because mm, true I, I, we do- we definitely don't live in a monoculture anymore and you know I'm okay with a certain, as you call it. I mean, it's speaking on something slightly different. But you, Robert, you've talked about pan enclaveism um, on like a social basis. But even like you know subcultures online, like different online scenes. It's all well and good. It feels like it's a natural thing to happen at this particular point because no one trusts like the main narrative. However, it is not. Um, it is. It is not a fertile ground uh, for 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 futurism because real futurism that isn't just, like, jacking off in VR, that isn't just, like, <laughs> a projection, an imagination, it has to be, it, I guess I'll pose it as a question, like, can, can a real authentic futurism come out of anything but a monoculture? And I think that a lot of uh, great thinkers would probably say, no, I mean, uh, not to wax too academic here, or, or, like, pretend I'm some expert on Nietzsche, but... Like, I know that Nietzsche wrote a lot about, uh, was very concerned with the uh, declining horizon for the West, and I think that we're living in a moment where that process he delineated where the horizon was closing was getting smaller uh, due to the dissolution of culture and decadence uh, is something that we've hit, has hit a fever pitch, has, has become totalizing, and uh, yeah, I don't, that that's why we have haunt, we have hauntology instead of futurism, because well, we've, but- a uh, quote-unquote end point of history. There is no futurism, so we make up sort of aesthetic um, replacements. Well,
2: wow, that's that's fascinating. I would agree. Uh, the first thing that came to mind is Nietzsche, in the sense that um, him like starting off as a philologist. He said that the cultures that produced the greatest art in history were the ones that had a singular language because they had the capacity to think universally within themselves in their own nation and culture. And so, I mean, of course, modern, like you know, bugman historians disagree with this. But basically, the cultures that could have like a single voice, they knew their place. I would argue, I would argue slightly differently. I think that it is true the thesis that some people like Sloterdijk say that we do exist within the age of what he called foam, where it's like micro bubbles upon micro bubbles upon infinite matrixes of yeah. just little subgenres. But I would say we do have a monoculture. It's just the monoculture is like terminally dead husk, yeah. dying civilization liberalism that people um, instinctually find to be spiritually alienating. But in terms of the futurism, I think the problem is that futurism should go... Um, now that I'm thinking about it, my video, my video, by the way, which was a thread by a very great mutual of mine who's followed me for many years, um, I think that's kind of like a, you would say, a, a sort of Christian response to someone like Georgiani, who is a Promethean. Um, it's something that, a space definitely to be explored. My problem with a lot of the futurism that tends to go about within, like, 2010's right-wing discourse is I fear that a lot of people, you know, without being too controversial, without stepping on too many toes, I feel like a lot of people, they they want, you know, glorious, gay, automated, luxury fa- space fascism, and it's sort of like, I don't know, you have to, like, there's one thing to take the tools of your enemy and sort of re-engineer them, but then when it just becomes um, like, your vision of the future becomes, you know, a very placid form of what was ostensibly earlier iterations of liberalism. I mean, and even NRX like suffered from this as well. I there there really is a, a not a powerful motivation there to explore a new aesthetic space, whatever that may look like. I mean, this is a question that I've struggled with for years now. What does a new aesthetic space in these spheres even look like, apart from something like Fashwave? Um, so. Yeah. Oh yeah Matt uh, you mentioned
1: uh, my article on pan enclavism and that kind of mixed reviews and uh-huh. uh,
2: well the one guy I said it was the most racist thing he's ever seen this uh, UCLA guy uh, so <laughs> yeah.
1: oh yeah like I guess uh, I had another article like on on a similar theme like Cameron posted it and some of the comments were dismissive so some I think like the both the left and the right, And the kind of normie centrist types are pretty uncomfortable with the idea, but it it does seem to be the direction of, like, where we're headed. And, uh, yeah, I plan on recording a show on just this topic. And uh, there are criticisms that it will lead, like, what you said earlier about the quote from Nietzsche, like, needing, like, Nietzsche's quote and the kind of right-wing quote that multiculturalism leads to fragmentation and like, a weakened nation. And I get that, but, like, I... I basically support this because I think it's it's the best or at least least bad option of all the options that are presented, and I don't really see any alternative, but uh, what are your thoughts on this whole idea of pan-enclaveism? Uh, there isn't even like one agreed upon term, it's kind of just like a thought experiment, you could say it's like right-wing multiculturalism, but uh, what are your thoughts on its viability and how it relates to like Canada as a post-national nation?
2: I think that, in a sense, we kind of do live in, like, now that a lot of, like, certain forms of right-wing discourse, either through, like, repeated bannings or just people leaving, I think we do exist within, like, a weird form of right-wing multiculturalism in the sense that we have different, like, disparate groups all together and sometimes even divided on ethnic lines, but that seem to, like, get along, like, you know, like, Mediterranean's like us, like me, for instance, can get along with the Slavs. and but at the, but at the same time, I think that this Neo-Enclave idea, it is, I hate to say it is kind of like the least bad, because like, what's going to be the future? Like, Secretarian violence? Is that like some kind of like weird, like Turner Diary race war fantasy? It's not, I hate to say it, but that's not in the, I mean, it could be, but. Yeah, like a lot of uh... right-wing
1: fantasies about uh, their vision for the future are just copes. I think this is basically the only way to fulfill a lot of the objectives, but it's also the most practical and real realistic, despite its flaws. But I think the right, like you have like the kind of ethno-nationalist right, but also kind of the normie,
0: <clears> yeah. like the
1: more normie center-right types who view being American as something kind of sacred that's beyond one's ethnic heritage. You have like that too. I think the right, I mean the left is... Uh, my reactions from leftists were mixed. Some left-wing types seemed uh, open-minded, but there's a few obviously a few comments that were pretty nasty. And then I think, like, uh, like my article, my other article, uh, New Pluralist Agenda for California, got posted on Amer- Jared Taylor's American Renaissance. And I'd say, like, uh, out of the comments, like, the majority of them were kind of dismissive for those critiques that, basically the critique, the right has that diversity weakens, uh, weakens like the nation. That's expected, but I do predict that this type of politics will really catch on in the future.
2: Well, I hate to say it. I, I hate to, uh, break it to all of my American friends out there, and I don't say this to, I don't say this with any sort of confidence, because I, I wouldn't wish this upon my enemy, but, uh, if you look to Canada, like, I know people used to talk about the Sweden model. model. I think that's, I even referenced yeah. Canadian
1: multiculturalism in the article I do, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, you did. Um, I, 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 I would say that, um, okay, here's the thing. I say the Canada model because I think that's sort of where America's heading, especially if uh, the Kamala administration, because, uh, you know, who's what's going to happen with Biden, uh, if the Biden-Kamala administration gets their way, you, you'll sort of have, like, this odd, uh, reconquista of, like, center lib neoliberal politics and everyone's sort of looking to Justin Trudeau as the the model, like, the model puppet of governance in the future in, 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 at least in terms of elite circles. And I think that the reason Canada has made it quote-unquote work is because there is, like, a large ethnic, um, there is, like, a like outside of the big cities There still is a large like white majority Population um, There are certain areas that have indigenous people That are in the majority But by and large it's mostly like Anglophone, Franc- francophone Then like you know Euro immigrants Like you know my family that came here In like the post the You know in between the two world wars But at the same time in the big cities The reason it quote unquote works Canadian multiculturalism is because you do have very stark, very... Oh, sorry, I said the word stark. Oh, Um, yeah. Very, very, like, dramatic ethnic enclavism, and uh, it's just, like... You know, even Bimbo Ubermensch talked about this in the dating scene. Like, there there just happens to be very strong ethnic lines in terms of, like, complete ghettoization. Yeah, I think...
1: So one part of it is ideology. There's this kind of ideology that America is, there's something magical and exceptional about America, but purely because of its Canada's ideology. Dusty, uh, yeah, that, I mean, it, that's, part, that's part of it. But I also say, like, Canada, like, the immigrant communities, like, mostly from South and East Asia, like, are fairly recent. Well, America yeah. actually does have a lot of uh, a lot of minorities who trace their family, like, way back.
2: Yeah, that's, that's another thing, too, because Canada was always caught in between different worlds and in between two empires. Well, actually three if you consider the French, but that that was more in their declining period. Uh, but let's say three empires, um, Britain, France, and then America. And so it really didn't have a solid foundation. Now, there was a solid foundation before, um, before Trudeau came along in the 60s. I mean Trudeau's father, of course, Pierre. Uh, if you really want to trace what quote-unquote modern Canada is... Then it really is Trudeau's daddy that sealed the deal in terms of Canadian multicultural experiment. Um, but Canada used to have more of a sense of loyalist identity and purpose, um, either to France or to England. And the the World War has really demonstrated the sort of uh, the the willingness to um, get the job done and sort of the hardness of class.
1: The uh, obviously like uh, the French in Quebec. Is the British influence, like, still noticeable?
2: Um, only as, like, a museum type of culture, but no. We are basically in Ontario and Vancouver. Um, we are basically, like, America. Um, and and even in the West, I, I would say, though, I mean, as much as we are kind of like America, Canada, I would say, and, you know, this is a controversial take, we kind of are, like, more of a regionalistic, uh culture than America is, in a sense of when you go to Alberta, things are, like, different than they are in Ontario, and you go to, like, Vancouver and Quebec, things are different. You go, like, down home, which, like, what we call down home is the Maritimes, like Nova Scotia, PEI. Uh, those people are obviously different. Like, they are also different haplogroups, and I think that, like, America, as much as it is regionalist, there still is kind of, like, the uniting force, whereas Canada... I mean, if you talk to people in the Maritimes, if you talk to people in Alberta, they have like a much different negative opinion of people in Ontario than like we do of them. And it's for a good reason. So I would say America and, uh, sorry, Canada in a way, we don't really have a unifying culture. We kind of are almost like a neo-enclave society already. But the problem is that the overhead, there is like this totalizing like woke liberalism that has basically was a sort of bastardization from American liberalism uh, that has infected the whole body. And we really didn't have any natural defense to it. Uh, th- this is basic. If you look up the author, George Grant, he wrote this book, Lament for a Nation. He was a professor fairly close to me in Hamilton. Uh, and he wrote about how American multicultural liberalism, that it was going to colonize Canada and that any sort of like right-wing in Canada that used to be what they called so, high-courier
1: to clarify yeah. is uh, so Canada's existing political paradigm is it an extension of the original Canadian multiculturalism from the 60s, which uh, some could make as maybe uh, like a watered down version of what I'm advocating or do you see it more as an extension of America's uh, woke liberalism or a combination of both?
2: Uh, Canada is it's a combination, but I would say Canada is pretty much a petri dish of American woke liberalism. Hence why I think the Canada model is more apt than the Scandinavian model, because Scandinavia has a number of, quote-unquote, problematic aspects to them that uh, won't fly with American wokes. Canada really is like an accelerative... It's an accelerative form of like what the original, um, which was enshrined in the 60s in the Constitution with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, It really is like diversity is our strength sort of thing. And, you know, to tell you the truth, like I, there's some certain migrant populations I necessarily don't have a problem with, but I do think that in terms of the long, long-term demographic trends, I mean, you know, this is like typical argument. I think that it's going to create more problems as time goes on. And just even if the people are the nicest people in the world, it's just you can't really kind of have a functioning civilization where different people have different notions of what governance and culture is, but the only way that is, that's maintained is if you have a very like top-down elitist class, which in, in some strange ways, can, the Canadian political class is even more entrenched and even more like unified than it is in America, uh, believe it or not. I mean, this the sort of American political tribalism, I mean, it's there, but the political ruling class is much more unified than people like to think. I mean, it's certainly more unified than the Democrats and the Republicans, although you, the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, I mean, they're let's face it, they're in it together. It's all k-fade, right? It's all, it's all a work. But in Canada, there really is our political system, our parliamentary system is almost designed to have um, a greater degree of political autonomy in terms of the political cl- ruling class. So... Oh,
1: yeah. Those, I mean, those are the trends that I see. I didn't notice that you responded to a tweet by Claire Lehman of Colette, And uh, she's kind of a perfect example of kind of intellectual dark web type who wants to kind of like freeze. She wants to freeze the world like permanently in the liberalism of the 90s. But uh, you did respond. She had a tweet. I think it was about... In cells, but she kind of like racially tinged it, and uh, yeah, her response yeah. seems like kind of a pretty standard, like kind of pull your up from your bootstraps response.
2: Yeah, it's but that type of response you have to notice that the the woke neoliberal order they will reappropriate like boomer '80s conservative talking points when it's convenient to them when it's sort of. um disenfranchises the large, like, young well, she's, male.
1: Well, she's not woke, but she kind of wants no, to no. have it both ways. She wants to oppose wokeness, but yeah. she, then she wants to freeze things in the liberalism of her youth. Like,
2: that's the type. And 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 notice how she'll, like, signal switch when it's convenient. So, I mean, and I have no love for this man, but he she recently went after James Lindsay. Oh, yeah, I saw that.
1: She called yeah. him, uh... She called him racist because... He said that critical race theory was actually against white people as opposed to just saying that it was bad because it goes against classical liberalism, which obviously yeah. is her stance.
2: Yeah, so she'll like this is my big problem with the IDW is that well, first of all, they're not real intellectuals, let's face it, but like they 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 will um very much soil themselves when it's convenient and they will sort of play catch up to the globo liberal order, when they are when push comes to shove, and it's sort of like what Cicero said. Uh, what did he say? Um, a, a traitor inside is is probably worse than a standing army at the gates. So, um, yeah. Geo,
1: you were making the point that a lot of uh, woke types will sort of regurgitate like these, uh, like Reagan era, like bootstraps conservative mentalities.
2: Yeah, like they'll they'll sort of apply the same language of uh, welfare queenism to like people in Appalachia, like the the sort of the decimated white working class. Um, Matt, you had a point uh, earlier, yeah.
0: No, not really. I mean, uh, yeah, they do they do um, utilize that eighties uh, bootstraps rhetoric. I mean, there's famous examples of the National Review, which is obviously <laughs> yeah, different not, but. They'll also do the same. I mean, I just have to wonder, I'm not even, my views are not that extreme. Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, never punch right, never punch right. Like, obviously, obviously, people have more moderate views and have a prerogative to defend them. But yeah, I, yeah. at this point, in 2021, I don't understand how you have people who really think that it's going to pay to, you know, draw these red lines. Like, we never talk about white people being oppressed. So that seems to be what Lehman was doing. Um, even though, even though it's a clear reality to anyone,
1: with uh, Claire Layman, and there were two examples: there was her her tweet on incels, then her tweet about uh, Lindsay and ethnocentrism in
0: CRT. Like, I, if it's 2015, like the the so-called alt light and stuff, like I'm a little bit dissympathetic to the reasons why people at that time would have been like, uh, well, maybe we should try and uh, you know have good PR. Let's, let's, let's strike like a moderate sounding position. But in the context of 2021, I don't understand. It's it's so obvious it's that
2: impossible.
0: you're better off just being honest, at least, which a lot of these people aren't. And, and a lot of these people want to release what can be said or not.
1: What uh, yeah. he said, that's like CTR. He said like that. I mean, yeah, Lindsay said that it was explicitly uh anti-white. I think the other example is uh Richard Hanani, uh, uh he had oh, yeah, yeah he had a post yeah, where yeah. he he actually opposed C, CRT but he said the roots of it were the 60s era civil rights movement which really goes against like the kind of basic bitch conservative where they're against CRT but they also love like Reagan and MLK
2: yeah exactly they they are still they're still like convinced of the idea of like meritocracy in America which was i hate to say like spurious at best i mean even in, back in the 50s, that was sort of like, I mean, it, but it's kind of interesting what you bring up, Matt, um, about the alt-light. It's very funny seeing their progression to people that were, as time gone on, as time went on, like more of them were more comfortable with like what you consider quote-unquote far-right positions, which I mean, really, they weren't exactly far-right about like 20 years ago, but... Um, some of them have just like completely defected to like BradTube, which is leftist YouTube, and uh, they were total cowards and total sellouts. And uh, yeah, I, 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 it's just it's very interesting how it's, things. Uh, have- it's a
0: weird scene, which kind of brings this conversation a little bit back to when you were talking about Journey to Vapor Island earlier. I mean, that was it was just such a different time. Those times yeah. are long gone. I mean, the alt right doesn't really exist anymore. The no. alt right yeah. definitely doesn't exist. Like it's it's <laughs> completely dissolute.
1: Or post-right, like, yeah, these terms get thrown around the post-right and the post-left, post-left, which yeah. I don't even, like, there isn't even a clear definition, but it's post-everything.
0: I think whatever time period, just politically now, I'm speaking, and in terms of alternative politics and, you know, more fringe, dissident politics, uh, whatever period we're in now, there's. I don't think there's any point in trying to label it, because I think it's an in-between. <laughs> I think. No,
2: I mean, th- there still is some implicit influence from frog twitter there, oh yeah there, and, and there was even um i'm old enough to i was in it long enough to remember when a lot of this discourse came out of like a number of forums came out of like my posting career came out of Salo forums uh and then all of them just decided to go on to twitter um uh, but a lot of the discord like i mean but the- then you had like as you have like you know the America First people, and then you have others, and before them, and you had Gamergate, and sort of this mishmash of like dissident culture that, in some ways, was a failed alchemy. And but it, my my only white pill. I mean, even the language of pills—that's like you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but my only white pill is that. Um, people are going to get more serious and they're going to potentially get more intellectually and artistically creative as oh yeah i would say that for sure
1: like uh, i think a lot of political stuff seems to be like a cope or just a waste of energy but i'd like to see more channeling into like a artistic creative uh intellectual movement like sort of like a new like a new bohemians if that sounds
0: cliche
2: yeah like a new secessionist uh, movement i would say
0: the, the silver lining of a of a time period like this on online and on Frog Twitter, or whatever you want to call it. But secession, appear. not in a not so much in a in a physical political. No, no, sense. no I'm
2: talking about the Vienna Secession. The uh, yeah, the, exactly. Um, Vienna Secession. Um, they were a rejection of the sort of stuffy 19th century classicism within the French Academy, and they create help create. Um, what what came after them was Art Nouveau and Art Deco and they were led by luminaries like uh, Gustav Klimt and they really believed in combining like a, a total work of art so they would combine craft with interior design with painting uh, and they believed that you have to go back to these more traditional art practices but for artworks that weren't like quote unquote trad in the sense of 19th century academic painting uh, and they really believed in having like an organic holistic like social movement even that embraced a very, um, very particular, like crafty type of aesthetic. Um, and I think that in some ways, if we're going to have an art movement on the political right, I think we have to look at what the Venus secession, what they were doing. Um, yeah.
0: Like
1: Italian futurists.
2: Or Italian futurism, yeah.
0: Well, I think the time is right now because, as Robert said, anything dealing directly with politics seems like. Not oh, yeah, the, like,
2: all these people
0: talking, also, getting all pumped
1: up uh, about Rick DeSantis? DeSantis, and yeah, it's like, I mean, I don't have a problem with, like, voting for him, but it's just the whole kind of, like, not, the political savior
0: mentality. Yeah, it's not going to be Trump 2016 again. Obviously, Trump 2016 wasn't a savior either, but at least aesthetically, it was uh, It was
2: an impulse, yeah, it was the last gasp. Um It, it yeah. was, yeah.
0: But, so, like, yeah. in this period... When, when that kind of thing does seem useless and potentially dangerous to engage with politics directly, I do think engaging with the artistic and intellectual end of things is good, like, soul-building for whatever Yes. Comes.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Gio, uh, you're a fan of the true crime prison YouTubers. And I've actually <laughs> been, I've personally been getting in on that scene, scene a bit. Uh, actually, I have an interview with, like, a prison guard that probably I'll probably upload to Star Trek TV pretty soon, but you have, like, Wes oh, nice. Watson and uh, the guy Sean Atwood from the UK and yeah. uh, Big Herc talks about wig-splitting and busting cheeks. So is it just <laughs> entertainment or do you have some kind of, like, unique uh, philosophical t- take on the prison
2: YouTubers? Um, oh, God. Uh, before Just, like, one quick last point. I think that, yeah, politics... Um. There are people doing serious intellectual work. Like, I mean, even... Even, like, people on YouTube, I think, like, in order to survive as, like, someone on the right on YouTube, you sort of have to be a bit more clever and creative. And I think that it's a good thing that all these grifters sort of slowly got bodied over time. But uh, let's just put a cap on that. Um, Yeah, the the prison YouTubers, I think that it's really great how um, they're exposing, like, a culture within a culture in American society. I think, like, people don't realize just how massive the prison industrial complex is. And I think, like, in some ways, it's one of the only avenues in American society where people get to um, encounter more of a primordial type of existence. I mean, that's incredibly negative and destructive, obviously. But it's like what Big Herc says. Like, oh, you're in there with some barbarians, man. It's like, uh, it, it's true. You, it's, it's like this joke that the comedian Tim Dillon said. He's like... What about the people that went to prison and realized that prison's the only fair place left in this society? It's kind of true. Prison, like war, gives you sort of a weird clarity. I mean, I've never been to prison, but from what they describe, uh, it gives you like a weird clarity in life that's severely lacking in all of like total deracinated uh, hyperreal Americana. It's like prison's the only form of American subculture that has like a very um dramatic form of simplistic existence that I think people in some ways crave, ironically enough. That's why they're so popular. I mean, yeah. it's the only,
0: you know, so... Like, it would seem that prison is pretty much the one of the last spaces in American life and in the, in the West where uh, you can actually go and experience uh, power dynamics fairly undisguised. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're there, the, stro- the strong survive mentally, physically, like there's a, a clear hierarchy. Contrast that with um, the aesthetics we were talking about earlier, the aesthetics of concealing power, of being, you know, kind of self-effacing, that kind of neoliberal, like, not garbing yourself in the garb. Mark of Zuckerberg, stuff. purple shirt and jeans. That's kind of an interesting contrast, I would say. Like, that, not that it's good to go to prison, but it, when you hear about, even just watching the YouTube videos, it's uh, it's access to, like, uh, uh, it's what, uh... You know, Bab talks about this a bit too. I thought that he endorses prison or even talks about it. But like, it's one sort of these untamed space. Even though it's prison, so you're totally, you know, um, subservient to a system. At the same time, the the social dynamics themselves are this like uncharted space where like uh, there's still a bit of there's still a bit of nature to it, so to speak.
2: Oh yeah, wild so, nature.
1: There was a post on Solo Forum that Nicola Solo linked to about the meme. Of how it's kind of used as like a threat against the middle class. It's really ingrained in American culture and media, but uh, he made the comparison to the Soviet Union, and that's an interesting kind of sociological take, and then also Coach Blackpill had a video, I don't know if you've seen it, his critique of kind of that, the prison YouTuber's exploit.
2: Yeah, Yeah, he he hates Wes
1: Watson, that they kind of... I mean, a lot of them do, like, they they are playing up the role, because Wes Watson, like, he's, like, screaming... He's yelling at you, and like you literally, like you literally see like the spit just like pouring at your face. And, <laughs> like and yeah, a, a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but he does <laughs> say that they kind of exploit and they glorify that life for profit. And he thinks like a, like a uh, misguided, a young guy might actually, might actually think it's cool and go out and commit a crime. And then he also has a critique of the prison morality, like comparing. He gives an example of comparing a guy who commits a, an armed robbery. And actually, murders someone to like a kind of a statutory rape offender. So, your thoughts on the on like the Coach Black Pill video, and then the Salo the Salo forum uh,
2: thread? I, I think um uh, I, I maybe have come across the Salo forum thread as well. I think that while well, judging by the threads in Salo forum, I think I pretty much know uh what the the line is um not just, I mean, there are a lot of creative, amazing things have come out of Salo. But when it comes to prison, I can kind of almost guess what they're going to talk about. Um, I think Devin—he's—he's he's right in one sense. Um, You're talking I, I about Black
1: know, Coach Blackpill or solo
2: Yeah, Coach Blackpill. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's his name, Devin Stacker. Um, no, sorry, that's the Blackpill guy. Sorry. No, no. Um,
1: I think Coach Blackpill is from New Zealand.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I watched that video. Sorry, I'm talking about Devin Stark, the Black Pill guy. Oh Uh, yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Um, And the thing is with
1: Coach Black Pill, he's not. He's actually not like a full. He doesn't describe himself as like an incel. He's actually tries to present himself as more, as more kind of nuanced. Like he's some people might criticize him as being like a triangulating kind of centrist type.
2: No, in some ways, yeah. But that video. I don't think that Wes Watson and these prison YouTubers, they they glorify it necessarily, because they go at great lengths to describe the pain and agony. Sorry, pain and agony. The pain and agony that it, like, the toll it takes on just the human psyche and the human spirit to actually go through prison, but I can kind of see where, like, you know, less intelligent youth they sort of see it as glorifying, but at the same time, I think that yeah, it's true. The like prison morality is very brutal and terrible. And, and I have, even with that,
1: like I've heard some people like the the concept of prison justice. Like,
2: yeah, I've also is. heard
1: some people say that it, it's kind of over overhyped and over-exaggerated.
2: It, de- it depends where you are. Like a lot of people that do. That makes say, sense. Like, yeah. Yeah, like I know the northern states. They say it's not as common. I know in Canada, um, the prisons. They're not as divided by race. I mean, it depends on... If you go west, like, there's certain indigenous gangs, and if you go, like, near here, there's Muslim gangs. But it's not as much, like, to the degree as the California prison system. But I know that sexual assault does happen in Canadian prisons, but I think that it's not as, like, codified as a form of punishment Um, I I know certain northern states if you ask a lot of ex-cons they like almost get offended at that assertion that like prison rape is like a common thing Um, but I do think that the threat of prison rape which I think the the cell forms I think he's talking
1: about about, like uh, towards like focusing on the class angle as a deliberate mechanism of social control but not against the criminal class against like the middle class from revolting and I have no idea if that's That's deliberate, but it is kind of a theme in Hollywood films, and he makes the comparison to the Soviet Union.
2: I think in some ways it's true, in the sense that the Soviets had a carceral system, especially in its declining period, that was, in some ways, they had no control over and was autonomous, and they created their own culture um, onto themselves. And you had, like, a lot of, like, these vicious, like, athletes and bodybuilders that were in the military, then they went to prison that they didn't know what to do, so then you had, like, a lot of, uh, you basically like, had goons for hire, I mean, Bap was talking about this, but in the Soviet prison systems, there was a lot of, um, crossing over with the quote-unquote middle class, I don't know if you could even describe it that way, in the Soviet Union, because there was just such a sheer volume of political prisoners, whereas in America and, like, I mean, North America in general, and Europe, I think that the prison system it's starting as you know as offshoring becomes like the effects of it become more well known as the opioid crisis continues i do feel that the middle class they're going to rub up against the prison system in america more frequently and as that happens um things are going to get quite a bit more terrifying and uh you're going to see the physical effects of total civilizational decay
1: i mean society as a whole has obviously declined but like if you're talking specifically about prison like I've heard that maybe there was an era like in the 70s and 80s when things were much worse
2: than they are today it was, it was totally more brutal in the 70s and 80s yeah. yeah nowadays it's not as bad in terms of I mean there's still massive amounts of violence and sexual assault but compared to what happened in the 70s, 80s and 90s like the OG prisoners the stories that they tell I mean it kind of makes like modern prisoners look kind of like more tame by comparison but I do feel that as the middle class enters into the carceral system, the carceral regime we're, we're probably going to see like the same sort of social contagions that happened throughout society in the Soviet Union um, of course this is all predicated on things getting worse, which I think maybe it's kind of inevitable, um, because Ameri- the American carceral system, that is like one of the few job creators in America left which is terrible.
1: Because there is there is a push on the left to end mass incarceration. Obviously, like on civil liberties, like they're full of shit, depending on which oh, group yeah. you're describing. Yeah. But I could see a scenario where they end they end mass incarceration, but they but then it's replaced by a more kind of oppressive surveillance state.
2: It will be a more oppressive surveillance state, but it'll also have the sort of trends of psychomedicalization that is present within, like, the therapy industrial complex. But I think the more realistic option is that they'll literally have, like, critical race theory woke prison systems where, to some degree, they have this in Canada and elsewhere, where certain minorities will get, um, they'll get certain exceptions. And, and, like, okay, here's the thing. Controversial take, especially in our spheres. I do think the American prison system is kind of, like, racialized to a degree, but I think that as time goes on, you will start to see the the dregs, like the decimated husk of the white working class. They'll also be subjugated to forms of carceralization that the Black American population has went through. But I do think there is a case to be made that it is true there is a degree of racialization. I am not, certainly not one of these like conservatives that just de- dismiss it offhand. There has been cases of vast injustices. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but at the same time, I think that this system is going to get to a degree where um, other forms of even the white majority is going to start feeling it as well.
1: Kind of relevant yeah. to the meme of woke the woke austerity meme, relevant to that.
2: Yeah, exactly. The woke austerity. Yeah. So they'll start to have... Um, they're, they're re- I think that it is true that the black community is kind of targeted for criminalization, But at the same time, if they're going to go with some form of, like, woke criminal justice, that's just going to, like, you know... It goes without saying it's going to cause more problems than it solves. But uh, I think the American... American justice in general is such a broken system. Because I I remember someone said this... um, I think it was in a YouTube comment or it was on Twitter. It was some, like... It was some griper or someone... That said, you know the people that probably deserve the American prison system, we should basically execute them anyways. Uh, we should have much more like easily accessible death penalty results. But the people that don't deserve to be in prison, they probably shouldn't be in uh, oh, a situation yeah. where they're. Oh yeah, that's kind of. I think like, I yeah. think you
1: can make the case that the the criminal justice system, penal system, is analogous to overall political trends. Because yes, if the right, yes. if like the if a hard right came to power they would probably have like mass executions of the worst of the worst. And if maybe a genuine or positive version of the left uh, came to power, they would try to make things more humane. But I think these conditions are symbolic of overall political trends. I think the word like, neoliberal is kind of a bit cliche and overused, but I do think it's kind yeah. of symbolic of how mass society and the political system combines like the worst elements of like the left and the right.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, it, it's like what Zizek said. He said that. Um, it's like what um Zizek said. Um, the 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 Nazis they would just basically execute people. They would like, get rid of you. They would they would like, literally disappear you. Whereas like the Soviet, he said like they wouldn't. Um, they would spare you the humiliation of the show trial because the Soviets they had the mindset of like this is a terrible injustice you're committing against our glorious utopian system and how dare you um, escape the long house of the Soviet mother, right? Um, I think, like, the same, in the same sense, if the far right were to take power in America, I mean, granted, if it was, like, if it had, like, an intelligence to them, if it wasn't just, like, this, like, boomer Fox News revenge fantasy, I think that they probably would, you probably would have, like, some form of, like, mass execution of, like, the worst criminality in society, but at the same time, I feel that the approach that a lot of people on the right have I truly think, like, a lot of crimes that are punished in America probably don't deserve to be. But, like, the more severe stuff like, you know, murder, uh, serial murder, sexual assault, rape, like, those things, uh, I think, like, yeah, I mean, I'm not... When I was younger, I thought the death penalty was kind of, like, not good. But now I think that there's just certain people you can't have in society. What a, well, there's,
1: like, the argument yeah. that about the chance of innocence...
2: Oh, that's another thing too. I think like in order to have a system where you have um you have executions by the state, I think the like there's been terrible cases of misjustice. Um, but at the same time, the to me the way that they do the executions is like through like trying to be quote unquote humane, to me it kind of looks actually more inhumane to just like stick a needle in your in, in these prisoners, and just let us more about yeah.
1: the aesthetic to the viewer, I mean, that actually seems... Yeah. There was, uh, like, there was South Carolina wanted to bring back, like, the firing squad, and they let the, the well, condemned person decide, but, uh, it's more about, a lot of it's more about, like, the visual to the public, as opposed to what actually causes the most horrific suffering.
2: Well, that's what I mean, they, they've said that the lethal injection actually causes probably more suffering to the prisoners. I mean, I've, I have to see the studies on it, but to me, just, like, in terms of just the spiritual aspect of it, I mean, a firing squad or being hung, that's, like, a more, that's a way more nobler death than just fading off into oblivion. I think, like, yeah. unironically, we have to bring back the firing squads.
0: No, so- i actually <laughs> that, like, literally verbatim, here, but there's something extremely, and I am pro-death penalty, but there's something extremely disturbingly clinical about the uh, lethal legal Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah, I would, if I were going to be put to death for some reason, I would much rather
1: the most most humane would be putting someone to sleep first, and then, like, a guillotine would be, like, the most humane, probably. probably. I don't know,
0: there's just something, like, and maybe maybe death row inmates don't deserve this honor, but, like, I don't know, the best way to go out, as Geo said, you know, uh, you just that, that maybe it's all aesthetics, but, like, the firing squad has a certain martial flavor to it, which I think would be, you know, acceptable, and then... Like that
2: Goya painting. Classic. Yes. <laughs> but, it, it's something that is... Like, the way that we treat death, even, especially in the last few years, the fact that we have such a pervasive society of, you know, Ernst Becker's concept of death denial, it seems that it's everywhere, and that even though our, the sort of aesthetics of hypermodernity is so clinical and dead and medicalized... Do you we, think it's
1: atheism, or that's too, like, basic bitch kind of conservative...
2: I, in some sense it is. but at the same time, we are seeing sort of like weird forms of politicized reenchantment that are almost gnostic in character. But it is kind of, I think when it comes to like people at the talk, especially at the top, especially like the Silicon Valley bug men and like the neoliberal order, I think that it is kind of like, um, they're trying to force a form of disenchant, like a di- disenchantment that comes off as atheistic but still has immensely negative spiritual power that I, I, you know, controversial take, but I don't believe there's any, like, true atheism out there, in my opinion. I think that everyone has, um, a spirituality, whether you want to like it or not.
1: Wokeness is definitely a religion, but that's, that's kind of brought up now, because now the right says wokeness is a religion, but before, like, before they would say that the left was actually ten years ago, you had, like, conservatives saying that the left was, uh, they lacked any moral foundation, which that's obviously nonsense. Relatism. More relativism. Yeah. I think, like, yeah, Bill O'Reilly, like those ty- those like boomer cons from a decade ago, back then. But that's not the case now.
2: And, and what they were doing, they were basically larping the godless communism meme uh, of, oh, yeah. of like their, of the yeah, in the 80s. Um, I think that like the relativism thing it worked for a time, and there was a period in the like. The, the late 90s, early 2000s, where the the left sort of, uh, like, you know, boomers, you know, boomer conservatives like Mark Stein talked about how the left, um, they, like, shed their spiritual skin, they got rid of the New Age, like, woo, and they, like, drew, they, they dived headfirst into, like, the New Atheist movement. But that really only served for a time because, let's face it, like, New Atheism, it's mostly, like, a, upper-middle-class, white-man endeavor, it's not going to serve the spiritual needs of, like, the the, the, what do they call it? the MB, uh, baby witches on TikTok. Oh, right, like yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, so,
1: so, so... Uh, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I do want to go back to uh, Gio, your art background. If you just want to talk about your artistic influences, and do they coincide with your political and philosophical influences? And then, do you have any thoughts, uh, Thoughts on just kind of the overall like economic and political mechanisms of the arts and viability of making a living as an artist.
2: Oh well, the last one, uh, no, um, is unless something changes. I mean, I'd be glad if uh, Peter Thiel or someone uh, gives me some money. But um, <laughs> um, in terms of my influences, I'm very much influenced by a lot of different things. Um, and Matt, I do want to hear your point before the end of the show. Um, but really quickly, um, I'm influenced by a lot of German Expressionism, a lot of the Impressionists, a lot of um, the New York School, believe it or not, and even people that came before them in the, uh, more of the Seattle area, what they called uh, in the 40s and 50s, the Northwest Visionaries. So painters like Mark Toby, Morris Graves. Um, I, in terms of politics, I'm very much influenced by painters and artists and people that were doing traditional crafts like printmaking, which is something that I do. Um, people that were operating within the lens of aesthetic modernism, but yet had a very primordial, almost traditional type of message. Even painters like Gauguin, and to an extent Picasso, depending on his period. Um, I'm, as, I'm not a big fan of Picasso. I'm more of a fan of people like Mark Toby, people like Jackson Pollock, um, Edvard Munch, and uh, you know, even like what you would consider "quote unquote" degenerate artists like Francis Bacon, I'm hugely influenced by. Um, and I know my shout out to my friend Paul Talk on YouTube. I know he'd be horrified by me listing all of these people. Um, but I am uh, influenced by a lot of diverse, dif- like you know, sources. But I think that in some ways they do influence a bit of my politics. But I think that art, in some ways, should transcend politics and even though all art is inherently political at the at the face of it, I think that we should strive to have um, art for art should be a spiritual endeavor, as cliched as that sounds. It should be something that transcends um, merely propagandistic political aims, because at the end of the day, we have to face the reality that we are all in this sort of like, you know, Paul Klee's angel of history, looking back at the horror and the wreckage of the, the pileup That is history. And even though that sort of messianic transcendence, it may not be on the horizon, we still have to create the work of art, whether it's literature or painting or printmaking or music, we still have to operate within the lens of there being a reconciliation of history itself. Um, so, Matt, please uh, finish your point. We cut you off. No, but...
0: I, uh, I won't, because I think that's such a good place to end the show. I mean, I was oh, okay. yeah. some yeah. other aside about new atheism or something, but I don't think it's super relevant, and I think that Robert yeah. should end the show on that monologue. Uh, very uh, very interesting and very true.
1: Oh, well, thank you, guys. I just, I not... well, like one last point about the arts is uh, kind of how we had the the postmodernist era in art, but then a lot of these kind of, like, 80s uh, illustrators... I don't know yeah. if you're familiar, like, I mentioned uh, Jim Buckles with the Bla- the Blower Guy show, and the other artist, I forget his name, who does these kind of, like, Victorian, kind of dollhouse-type illustrations, but, like, architectural. Like they're kind of pop art, but they're more... They seem to be, like, they're influenced by, uh, by Art Nouveau and Surrealism, but how kind of pop art... Because it's sort of like how traditionalists denounce... Like there's these different layers, like, some traditionalists denounce all art from, since Impressionism, or everything from the 20th century, and then some will just denounce art from, from, uh, like, the post like, since the post-war yeah. era, but it is interesting how a lot of the pop art, a lot of the great pop art that came from that era, like, including the 80s, even though, like, Nagel, like, uh, the artist, Nagel's a bit more, like, mass-produced, more kind of cliche, but his, his stuff, yeah. his stuff is definitely influenced by Art Deco, and then like there's Jim Buckles and then the other artist, forget it. I forget his name. Into like the dollhouses.
2: Well, I'm I'm influenced by a lot of like the 20 like the later 20th century people. Like um, I've I've written a lot about them. I have to actually go back to some art writing. Uh, but I've written about like Andy Warhol and uh and some Kiefer and people like that. And what do you
1: think about uh like David Hockney and Wayne Thiebaud?
2: Um, I'm okay. It depends what era of Hockney or Thiebaud. I think that. His recent stuff... They oh, his recent really one...
1: Away. Yeah, his recent one of the London Underground looked...
2: Or even, that was pretty I, silly. I, yeah, I've, I've written in defense of his cathedral work, but I honestly believe that someone should just, like, glue paintbrushes to his hand and take away his iPad. I mean, it's not get, serving humanity any justice. Uh, <laughs> I think that Hockney... He, Hockney's one of the few pop artists I actually do like. I mean, him and Keith Haring. I'm not a big fan of pop art. I'm much more of the. What about like,
1: uh, Wayne Tebow, like his architecture, and then his, oh, his famous yeah, ones at yeah, the cakes.
2: Yeah. I I think it was good for that era. Like it's it's certainly um very interesting, um but like the, in terms of like the mass produced like kitschy like type of pop art like you know Line Decker or um like, uh, Rauschenberg or people like that, um, I
1: think that... Oh, Rauschenberg is, uh, is the prince from the 80s. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, like, it's, it's just, I think that, um, as much as I do, like, the sort of lowbrow comic stuff, I think it's very interesting. Um, pop art, like, the way it sort of mutated in the 80s and then the 90s, um, it some some people like used it as an excuse for artistic laziness. Which I mean certainly nowadays the pop art is that like just gaudy terrible like sexually charged stuff that people like Jerry Saltz likes. It gives Pop art a bad name. But uh <laughs> I'm definitely like I, I think like um in terms of like the aesthetic vision of the contemporary world nowadays, there really is like such a an eclecticism that leads to blandness. And, like, I was talking about this even today with my good friend Adam Lehrer, the the infamous art critic, um, about how it seems that the hyper-politicization of the contemporary art world has, like, killed its spirit faster than even, like, zombie formalist trends of, like, neo-pop art or neo-expressionism or whatever. Or, like, now artists are going back to painting, but now it's, like, woke uh, figure painting... And it's like, you know, it's, it's trying to LARP something, but it's like a reappropriation of it. And to me, as much as I want to defend certain contemporary artists, and I think that there still is value to be had in the contemporary art world, they really make it a difficult job for someone like me on the political right to say, even though you may hate Sanford Biggers, you may hate this, like, monstrosity, and that's a ha- very hateable monstrosity at Rockefeller uh, Center, there there it still says something about our epoch that is at least worthy of an intellectual exploration maybe not so much an aesthetic or emotional or spiritual exploration but i do feel that a lot of these trends they're there for a reason and it's up it's it's becoming of us to truly analyze where these things have come from with the rockefeller
1: statue the the african statue was not what it says about the aesthetic trends beyond politics, because it's very different from a lot of the kind of minimalistic Yeah uh and also postmodernist uh, sculptures that were popular uh, a decade or two ago.
2: Oh, it's totally the opposite. It's this is what Sanford Biggers wants. I mean, not just show my podcast, but if you look at Style Talks number five, we talk about how Sanford Biggers is a total maximalist in terms of his what he called the it's part of um his series he called the chimera series where he basically takes like very gaudy and terrible appropriations of european quote-unquote classic hellenistic european art and mashes them together with like very bad appropriations of quote-unquote african art or rather what he perceives to be african art and he makes this like weird like mete, like mix of this like Neo Harlem Renaissance what he's trying to do sort of type of artwork and this is the product that is produced is this huge bronze monstrosity that has nothing of the it's a in some ways it's almost like an ambitious rejection of a lot of like minimalism and postmodern art that you was you could even say like, like, like uh like a lot of people
1: in our sphere are critical of minimalism yeah. but minimalism is also, in some ways, it is very, it's a very kind of white aesthetic genre, and like a lot of these, uh, like more like non-Western cultures that are being promoted by wokeness. If you look at Islamic art, Hindu art, uh, East Asian art, in you know, Latin America too, it's extremely maximalistic.
2: Oh yes, very much so. But it's maximalistic in the sense that, especially with Islamic art and with um and and with you know I mean when I went to grad school I, I my whole thing in my philosophy MA was about um, Zen and Chinese ink paintings and you have a lack a purposeful lack of figuration as opposed to Western especially in Islamic art because it was um, apocryphal it was Haram to depict people in art and they found ways around it but they created almost this beautiful um, proto abstraction in the Islamic art world. Uh, but when it comes to, like, maximalism, I think that it's in some ways it's true that, like, minimalism is, like, a white form of art, but it's very much, like, like, white beyond the more northern parts of the Hajnal line, if you know what I mean. It's white in the sense of, like, very northern European to almost Germanic to an extent. But when it comes to, like, Mediterranean or Slavic people, like me uh, being Mediterranean, to me minimalism, as much as I appreciate it on an intellectual level, it's, is kind of like alienating to me. I'm not going to lie. It's alienating to my Mediterranean sensibilities. (laughs) So, um, I mean, coming from like an Italian, like very maximalist aesthetic culture, I do appreciate Scandinavian quietism, especially with the works of Edvard, Edvard Monk. I do appreciate when an artist can restrain him, him or herself. Um, and it's, You know, a lot of my artwork um, is very single subject orientated um, because I feel like, even just in terms of my artistic progression, I feel like um, there's certainly ambitious works I want to do. But for now, I feel that it's very good to, uh, as an artist, to uh, recognize your limitations and your influences at face value. Uh, So, yeah. But I come, again, being like Italian, it's like almost a given that minimalism. It's going to uh, wound my soul in some ways. <laughs> uh, Gio, we're at the end of the
1: show. Uh, do you have any uh, upcoming videos and projects or websites that you want to plug?
2: Um, Just my YouTube channel, um, my, my Instagram. I'm working on a seller site with my co-host, Lev. Um, I just have to get around to putting product on it. Um, well, hopefully that will be out soon so like people can buy my artwork directly. Um, other than that, I want to get back into writing. I'm going to be writing stuff for my friend Adam Lair's substack called um, called uh, Safety Propaganda. Uh, and I want to, of course, write more stuff in, like, I Am 1776 and American Son. I haven't written American Son in a long time. I, I really feel bad about that. I've just been lacking with writing. And I also have um, my own substack, which I'm going to recently start publishing in. Uh, I think next week I'm going to release a piece on um, male fantasies and incels and things like that, so, yeah. I, oh, before I go, like, it's been amazing. Um, finally, on the Stark Truth, I mean, this has been such a great conversation, and I like, I love you guys' work, and uh, this has been... Fa- I mean, you've literally had so many great guests on. I feel very humble, my friends, so, my friends, yeah. Thanks, so, yeah, it's been
1: a great show, uh, Gio Panaschietti, uh, Great speaking with you and check out his work online. And thanks, Matt Pegas, too. Yeah, Thank for you, the- Matt.
2: Yeah, this has been great. I loved your contributions, my friend.
1: Thank you.